your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to look at the whole chapter today. That's on page 1785 in the Pew Bible, and I want to encourage you to keep it open on your lap as we go through it. I'll be referring to it often. Just by way of orientation, Paul, in verse 1 of chapter 12, starts out by saying, Now about spiritual gifts. Just to reorient us, this letter is a series of comments and answers to questions the Corinthian church has asked Paul. In the first six chapters, he has commented on some of the things he's heard about the church, about divisions, about disunity, about allowing unrepentant sin to remain within the body, about lawsuits that he's heard among, among believers, and about sexual immorality that is going on. And starting in chapter 7, he, he's answering specific questions that they have written him about. Questions about marriage, questions about food sacrificed to idols, and then an extended section on worship. They've asked him about the worship of the living God. And here, we are continuing to delve into Paul's comments the questions that they've asked him about worship. In chapter 11, he dealt with the church gender structure and also the church's deplorable stratification when it came to the Lord's Supper. They They were dividing and separating socioeconomically where some were eating the Lord's Supper first and then the others later. And here, Paul begins to deal with another type of stratification, and that is not socioeconomic stratification, but spiritual stratification, okay? Breaking away into different groups around spiritual gifts. Within the church, there were some that thought themselves superior because they had certain gifts, a very pagan idea that they were importing into the church. The Corinthian general obsession with power and position and status, of which we cannot relate whatsoever, right? Caused them to overvalue some members' contributions and undervalue other contributions by people. So Paul is asked to address this giftedness the gifts within the body. And that's the basis for the next three chapters, chapters 12, 13, and 14. But Paul proceeds down this road slowly. He wants to build an argument. He wants people to understand some very foundational things before he gets to the spiritual gift issue. So he starts with the most basic of foundations, that there is one faith and one gift. One faith, one gift. Look at verse one, verses 1 through 3, if you will. Now, about spiritual gifts. Brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, some... Somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. 
Therefore, I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus, be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. We have to remember that this whole section is dealing again with spiritual stratification. Superiority and inferiority. Lesser gifts and better than. Position, pride, and power to those in the body. So Paul begins by saying, you know that you were pagans once. Did you notice that? He says, you know that when you were pagans. I love how Paul brings this out. He reminds them of their common origin, their common starting place as believers. He's saying, despite the position you have in the body, you all used to be pagans. To those who think so highly of themselves, remember, you used to worship mute idols. To those who hold themselves in such a high spiritual esteem in the church, you were all equally under the penalty and wrath of God at one time. Apparently, the the Ephesian believers needed this reminder as well. In chapter 2, Paul reminds the, the people at Ephesus, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions. He's reminding them of their origin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, now he includes him in that origin, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the this, this sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. And he ends by saying, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's the equal starting position we all have. Corinthian, Southwestian. Paul reminds us and them that they have a common starting place. And that's a good, humble reminder for every Christian, for every believer. Remember who you once were. When you get that feeling of superiority in any way, spiritual or otherwise, remember your origin. I mean, look around. It doesn't matter what your last name is. It doesn't matter if you were born here and are a native, if you're from away, or if you, or if you came here in a yacht. It doesn't matter the gift you have in the body. We're all used to follow at one time the gratification of the sinful nature and, and this is hard to say, the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's a reference to Satan. So you either follow one of two people, God or Satan. And we all have a common and equal starting position under the wrath of God. And that should level the playing field just right there. That should humble the most proud person. But Paul adds to that. 
and says there is one gift and there's also one faith. Equal starting position and equal current position. One faith. We all have equality in our current position. Look at verse 3. Paul writes, Therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Spirit. All all Paul's saying there is, listen, if you have the Spirit inside you, you can't curse Jesus. You can't fall away. You can't reject him. But by the same token... If you have the Spirit inside you, it's only by the Spirit inside you that you can say Jesus is Lord. Paul's point is made in these last five words, except by the Holy Spirit. You realize what Paul is saying here? No one becomes a born-again Christian by figuring it out. No one becomes a born-again Christian by figuring this gospel out. And that's a good, humble reminder for every Christian. I used to have a uh, Chinese puzzle box. Do you know what those are? Those wooden boxes where you, you slide and press up and you do it in a certain order and then all of a sudden you can open that box, Right? And there's usually a couple slides on different sides and a couple pushes up and down. But you have to do it in the right order. You have to figure it out by trial and error in order to open the box. Salvation. Understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ does not come by figuring it out. Paul said this way back in chapter 2, and you can turn there if you like. Chapter 2 to the Corinthians. And he starts by saying in in verse 10 of chapter 2, but God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. Drop down to verse 14. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Salvation is given to you, the understanding is given to you by the Spirit of God. You cannot understand the gospel of Jesus Christ unless the Spirit helps you understand See, we tend to think of it like figuring out the Chinese puzzle box. That God saw our futile condition and sin, and he took pity on us, loved us, and so he came and was born a man 
And he lived and grew up, and he lived a perfect life, a sinless life, and he earned righteousness before God. And then he, he went to the cross, and he knew what he was doing when he went to the cross. He knew that he was substituting himself, an innocent, for a guilty person, for us, for you and me. And he took the penalty of sin, which is death, on the cross. And he died, and he was buried, and three days later he rose again, conquered sin and death. Now, what I've just described to you in those few words is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is true. When I drop a pencil, we have laws, physical laws that govern this physical place. And one of those laws is gravity. And none of us dispute it because it's a law. And the spiritual realm has laws too. There is truth spiritually. And what I've just described to you is true, axiomatically. It's absolutely true. Forgiveness is real. Reconciliation with God is real. But we can't make ourselves believe that. We can't convince ourselves that that is true. I think that this is most poignantly understood by those of us, myself included, who grew up in the church, that, that, were, that were marinated in the gospel. We can, we can kind of con, tend to convince ourselves that this is true because our parents believed it and the people we were around most of the time believed it. We didn't have that black and white experience, if you, per se. But we can't work this out like the Chinese puzzle box. We just can't do that. Because the gospel is understood spiritually. I don't know if you know these pictures. I see two faces there facing each other. But as soon as I tell you there's a chalice in between them, it switches, right? That's what it's like when the Holy Spirit gives you understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's like you saw things one way, and then all of a sudden the Spirit gives you understanding, and you go, oh my goodness, I am worse than I think I am. My sin needs to be atoned for. Oh my goodness. Jesus died for me. He took my penalty. Oh my, I need forgiveness. And and I need to be perfect before God. How am I going to get this perfection? Oh, Jesus gives me his perfect record. Oh, that makes perfect sense now. And if I'm going to live eternally, I need a God who is eternal, who 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 lives the resurrection. That's why the resurrection is so important. Because he lives. Now what I've just walked through with you 
You can convince, try and convince yourself that that's true. Or you can look around and feel the peer pressure of, I better believe this because I'm in church. Or I live in a Christian family. But until the Spirit turns on the light. And that becomes your truth. Until the faces become a chalice. It's only by the Spirit of God. You have that aha moment. Have you had that aha moment? Whether you grew up in a family or whether you came from a rough background and you met Christ. Have you had that faces to chalice aha moment? That's what the Spirit does. Ephesians tells us that it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Why? So that you won't boast. He finishes it out. And that was the problem in Corinth. They were boasting. Paul wants the Corinthians to realize, going into this discussion on spiritual gifts, that they have absolutely 100% nothing to boast about. Nothing to boast about. Common origin, common position, one faith, one gift. But secondly, Paul wants them to have a healthy humility about their spiritual gifts. So he tells them about their one God and their many gifts. One God, but many gifts. Look at 4 through 11. Paul writes... There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works through all of them and in all men. Now, to each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given, through the Spirit, the message of wisdom. To another, the message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith, by the same Spirit. To another, the gifts of healing, by that one Spirit. To another, miraculous powers. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues. And to still another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are the work of one in the same Spirit. And he gives them to each one just as he determines. There's a river that's about 130 miles long down in Louisiana called the Atchafalaya River. And it's a distributary from the Mississippi River. It meanders down into the Gulf of Mexico. And it serves as a significant source for the region of many industrial and commercial opportunities. Yet as scenic and productive and enriching as this river is... It owes all its strength, everything, to the Mississippi River. That's because a distributary doesn't have its own direct water source. It is the outflow from something else. What the Atchafalaya accomplishes depends wholly upon the Mississippi River. And that's the point that Paul is making here with one God 
but many gifts. There might be a myriad of gifts distributed throughout the body, but they all come from one source. One God, many gifts. I want to draw your attention to how God-centered, and I kind of read it so that it would highlight how God-centered this text is. But look in verses 4, 5, and 6. He's talking about the different types of, of service and uh, the different types of working and different types of gifts. But notice the Trinitarian formula there. From the Spirit, from the Lord, from God. As we read through the gifts, did you notice, and I, and I encourage you to mark up your Bible, did you notice how many times Paul goes back after describing a gift by saying, by the Spirit, through the Spirit, by one Spirit, by the same Spirit, and even in verse 11, the working of one in the same Spirit. David Jackman, in his commentary, says, discussion of this text often focuses on precise definitions of gifts. Perhaps you've heard that. You know, you begin to talk about what these gifts are. He goes on to say, probably because we are more gift-centered than God-centered as we read this text. Isn't that true? I mean, that's where our mind goes, right? Okay, pastor, what's the gift of healing? Does a person have it? Uh... How do I get it? Can you use it on me? What about the gift of knowledge? What does that mean anyway? Do I have the gift of faith? How is that different from normal saving faith? What about prophecy in tongues? Are they still active? What is prophecy? Foretelling, foretelling. Tongues, is it a a speaking gift or a hearing gift? Is it for the early church or does it keep going? That's what's going through our minds, right? Those questions, and that those questions, are not on Paul's mind. He's using those as a vehicle to show how God-centered the gifts are. He is using those gifts to highlight the giver. Paul wants his readers to understand that there is one source of the gifts of the Spirit, and that is God who gives many different gifts to many different people. Now, there are a couple different applications when you go to speak of this. Once you understand that this text is about the source of the gift and not the gifts, and the first application is, gosh, that should really make you humble towards the gifts that you've been given. This is the major application of this whole text. We are like the Atchafalaya River. We're a distributary. We gain none of, of, the, of the power by ourselves. We can take no credit for the gifts that we've been given. No credit. Everything is from God. Look at verse 11. It says, All these are the work of one and the same Spirit. And he gives, notice that the Spirit is a person, he gives them to each one, just as he determines. One God, many gifts, he is the source, he is the giver. You have nothing to boast about. 
Just as the Atchafalaya cannot boast about its productivity, neither can we. We are simply distributaries totally reliant on something greater. And as this truth drops from here to here, from understanding it to believing it, I'm just a distributary. As it drops down there, what happens is that fosters humility in your gifts. It fosters a a parity among other gifts. And that's exactly what he wants the Corinthians to foster in the Corinthians, this humility, so that they don't boast about their gifts, so they don't separate around their gifts. Now, yet at the same time, there's another application here, and that is that you're not only a distributary coming from a source, you're also a tributary. Did you see that? Look at verse 7. Now, to each one, the manifestations of the Spirit are given for the common good. These gifts you have been given, and every believer is given a gift, at least one. The gift you've been given is used for the body, for the common good. We're given these gifts to build into others, to be other-centered, not self-centered. As Tim Keller says, no one is a mere consumer of services. Everyone is a distributor. Everyone. And once this penny drops, our questions around the gifts begin to change, don't they? It's no longer, what do I have? It's how can I bless the body by not drawing attention to myself as I use this gift? How can I use my gifts without causing any division in the body? How can I be body-focused with this gift or gifts and not self-absorbed? Or, who in the body can use my gift? You're constantly looking in the body to use your gift. I like what Kim Riddlebarker says about the gifts. He says, the gifts of the Spirit are enumerated by Paul, are given for the service of others, for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ. The evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work is obvious when we think about the biblical categories, but not obvious when we think of them in pagan categories. Do God's people love one another? Is coffee made? Are extra chairs set up when needed? Do people sing joyfully and faithfully and participate in worship? Is food provided and drink served at potlucks? Is there focus on the poor and needy? Do people care for one another in times of need? Do they bear one another burdens like sending cards and making phone calls and praying for one another? Do people do these things without calling attention to themselves? These are good questions to ask about our own body. If you're in a discovery group, you're going to be asking that question this week. But this is a good list to apply to ourselves, isn't it? How right now are you being a tributary? How right now are you feeding other people with your gift? And do we really realize that we are simply a distributary? 
And anything and everything we have doesn't come from us at all. Now, with this humble understanding, Paul leads us to the last section, which is many, one body, many gifts. One body, many parts. Look with me, with me at 12 and following. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. For if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Now the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, we treat with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lack it. So that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are one body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And then the church of God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those who have gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those with speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. Paul uses the metaphor of the body, obviously, throughout this whole section. And that's the first thing we have to come to grips with if we're going to understand this. We are a body. As Riddlebarger puts it, this this challenges those among us who think the church is nothing more than a volunteer assembly that can be joined and unjoined at whim. You can't do that in a body. But the point that the church is not anything other than an organization with with member role. It's just not another organization with a member role. We are Christ's body. We are the visible representation of Christ on earth. Think about that a minute. We are the visible, we are the visible representation of Jesus Christ on earth. We are literally, spiritually connected with spiritual ligaments, spiritual tendons, 
spiritual muscle. We have a spiritual nervous system. When one part hurts, the rest of us do. I I know you've experienced that in the body. I know some of you, and I hope all of us, are experiencing that right now with Katie Denning losing her father. She's hurting. We hurt. We are one body. And Paul makes two applications based on this truth. First, those who feel unworthy need to be encouraged. Those who feel among us unworthy in their giftedness need to be encouraged. That's what Paul is stressing in verses 14 through 20. See, some in Corinth have been feeling beat down, unworthy because of the gifts that they were given, that they, are, are, that they were felt made to feel that their contributions were less than others. Look at verses 15 and 16. It says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, more showy, I do not belong to the body. It would not, for that reason, cease to be part of the body. There are some among us who feel that they are less than because of the gifts that they've been given. That, that the more showy gifts are more important. The teaching gift is more important. That the gift of, of, of prophecy, forth-telling, is more important. Paul is saying, not so at all. This is worldly thinking, and that's the constant temptation that we have to fight against. Bringing worldly categories into the church. That's the rub we a lot of times feel as we listen to preaching or teaching or when you're reading your Bible and your devotions. When you feel that rub, what's going on a lot of times is a fleshly or worldly category is being challenged. And that's what the Bible is constantly doing, whether it's preached, taught, or read. It's breaking down those categories that we bring into the church. As the Corinthians brought their categories of what gender expectations were, socioeconomic expectations, leadership expectations, and now gifts. And what the Spirit wants those to feel who feel unworthy, and what he wants them to know is all gifts are critical to the healthy operation of a body. Just imagine with me for one moment if people that were serving in less showy, in a less showy way, stopped serving. I sat in my office and I thought about that, how this body operates. Adult Sunday school and coffee fellowship would not be there. The overhead slides wouldn't move. The flowers wouldn't be here. The flowers outside and the gardens outside wouldn't be planted. And if they were, they would die because they wouldn't be watered. Your small children would not be being taken care of right now. The fire alarm batteries would never get changed. 
the Caroline, the bells would not be working? Who here thinks about the Caroline? Nobody but one. The sick would not be cared for. There would be no meals or dessert for the youth. It just magically appears. The congregation would not be ceaselessly prayed for, those prayer warriors that we never, ever, ever hear from. Shut-ins wouldn't be visited. Your youth would not be taught. KBC would not be decorated. There'd be no greeters. There'd be no music for us to sing by. That's the tip of the iceberg. Those are the less showy gifts. Now, God has arranged us exactly how he wants us to be so that the body will function. So those who feel less than, obscured, unworthy, be encouraged. That's what Paul is doing here. He's encouraging you. Second application Paul makes is in verses 21 through 26. And this application is specifically focused to those who feel superior. Those who feel I've got the gifts. These are the important ones. The eye cannot say to the hand, Paul writes, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. There were some in the Corinthian church that simply overvalued themselves. They had brought the worldly category of ability equal status into the church. Perhaps those who had head and eye gifts, the more showy and spectacular gifts, the gifts that are usually up front, were looking down on those that had the less showy gifts. Those with the gifts of miracles and healing and prophecy and tongues, which we'll deal with in a couple chapters, were dismissing those who had gifts of service and of helps and of administration. Paul's corrective here is gifts are a matter of service, not status. As a matter of fact, in verses 22 and 23, you can see that Paul seems to to lift up those weaker, less showy gifts and say, listen, they are indispensable. You have to treat them with special honor. You know, that's why sometimes the elders will, at the beginning of a service, say thank you to someone who is serving in obscurity, like we did today. Special honor to those who are serving under the radar. We should be treating those with less flashy gifts with special honor. We need to stress, like Paul, that we are one body, different gifts, but one body. Verse 27 says, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. When we truly understand that is when we will truly be united as a body. Please pray with me. Father God, I thank you so much for your spirit, for the gifts that you have in this body. And I pray, Lord, that we will heed what you have preserved for us. In Jesus' name.
Amen.